Welcome to ACR Moonshot, the Advanced Cardiac Resuscitation Podcast, where we embrace a bold change in the way that we plan for and respond to sudden cardiac arrest in the pursuit of saving more lives. And now your host, Joe Powell and Billy Croft. Hey, Joe. Hey, Billy, Billy, Billy. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good, man. Where <laughs> are we good. at this week? We are in the great state of Indianapolis. Indianapolis. I thought that was of Indianapolis. <laughs> right. Okay. State so let's, let's back that up. So we're in the great state of Indiana. We're in Indianapolis, Indiana. We're like close to the Indy 500. How's that? Is that, that a racing thing for me or what? That that sounds good. It's, oh, all uh, right. I, we, yeah, we're going to have to cut that out. That's, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. When I think of Indiana, I think of the Hoosier state. Oh, okay. Like basketball. There you go. There you go. You know, um, a great I, movie, right? Hoosiers. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Yeah. Good movie. Good movie. So, um, a lot of stuff has happened uh, in the last couple of weeks that uh, has really piqued a lot of people's attention. Yeah, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. So, yeah. Yeah, Monday Night Football. Woo. Yeah, yeah. That was... DeMar uh, Hamlin. DeMar Hamlin. Crazy, crazy. Right. Uh, good that he's uh, he's going to have a good outcome there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, uh, it was shocking for a lot of people to see that on national TV, you know. Um, and I, I can only say this from experience because I had a house full of people when that happened, you know, that, that are not, you know, EMS trained or doctors or nurses or anything. And they were literally shocked at what was happening on TV. And I'm sitting there going, what's wrong with you people? And then I'm like, oh yeah, they don't see this like yeah. I see this. You know? Yeah. This is not normal for them, right? This is not normal for them. It might be normal for you, but it's not normal for them. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's funny watching, watching that, and I'm, I'm, and I'm, and I echo what you just said, Joe. That I'm, I'm glad that the outcome was positive. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's fantastic. But it, it got my brain thinking about what's early mm. when we talk about our interventions, right? Right, right. So that was pretty early. Yeah, I, I think we, you know, we tend to look at things from our our own perspective, right? And and well, what's early to me is not necessarily early to the patient. Right. And so it's a whole different world. Many times as, you know, as we get a call and roll out the door or if we're already out and about, you know, we're on scene in a few minutes and it seems early to us, but it's not necessarily early to the patient. So, yeah, I think that's what we're going to talk about today. And we got, we got a great guest with us today to talk about what, what is early and what it's not. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's bring him on. Yeah. Terry. Gentlemen, how are we? Terry Kehoe. The famous, infamous Terry Kehoe. Infamous. That's more than famous. <laughs> Infamous, famous, something like that. <laughs> tell us about famous. Tell us who Terry Keogh is and why we should listen to you. Well, that's a tough, uh, a tough ask there. Um, but yeah, I am Terry Keogh. I'm the senior manager for clinical operations uh, for Zoll on the EMS and fire side. I've been a paramedic for a number of years, a lot of years. I'm still a recovering paramedic today, but uh, prior to coming to work in Zoll, I was a division chief at a large agency in, uh, in Northern Colorado. That's awesome. So just to give you a little background, you know, Terry and Joe and myself, we, uh, we do a lot of presentations on advanced cardiac resuscitation together. Um, mostly Joe and Terry, I, I come in every once in a while. So let me clarify that, but you guys do bulk of, uh, um, this stuff across the country. So, uh, we talk about this stuff a lot. So every week, every yeah, week. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, it's great that you're here, Terry, because we, you know, we can talk about, you know, what, what is early and what is not. Sure. I mean, specifically with defibrillation, right? Um, you know, I think Joe hit it on the head earlier, right? What is early to the patient and what's early to us? It really depends on your point of view, right? Um, and many times when we're finding the patient in sudden cardiac arrest, if we were to defibrillate them right away, that wouldn't necessarily be early defibrillation because that patient's been down for a, you know, a good period of time before we get there. Yeah, that's, that is true. Um, I, I guess we view early different, right? We get called, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, for a cardiac arrest. We respond. We do our thing. We get there in a couple of minutes, right? Yeah, it's the first yeah. time we've met the patient, right? We're with the, with the patient just in a few minutes. Yeah, but we don't know the whole I guess the whole backstory of what happened, right? Sure. I mean, how long did that patient, how long has that patient been down for when they went into cardiac arrest? Who recognized they were in cardiac arrest? Who contacted the public safety access point or 911 dispatcher? How long did it take for that dispatcher to process that call? You know, when did the uh, responding fire department or EMS system, you know, get that response? How long did it take them to roll out the door? How long did it take them to show up on the scene? You know, and over time, you know, what might be a couple of minutes, right, turns into 10, you know, 10 minutes a lot of times, right? When we really break that down, you know, it might be take us 10 minutes to actually make contact with a patient who's been in sudden cardiac arrest. So if we were to defibrillate them right away, is that early defibrillation? You know, where what we saw with DeMar Hamlin, you know, was a very different scenario, right? He, they, you know, folks got to him right away. That certainly was an immediate and early treatment for him, right? But the average, uh, you know, EMS response is probably not that way. So, yeah, so, so I totally agree with you, Terry. But, I mean, so what's, what's the difference? These, you know, uh, with DeMar Hamlin, theoretically, they got there, you know, relatively quickly. We don't know all the details. Oh, sure. Uh, but they got there relatively quickly. They started CPR, theoretically, and defibrillated him within just a few, a few minutes of CPR. Uh, he had a good outcome. When we get there as EMS providers let's say it's 10 minutes or 12 minutes later, what does that really make a difference? Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, the AHA is going to say it themselves, right? We know that defibrillation is most successful when it's administered as soon as possible after the onset of V-fib or VTAC. And it's a very reasonable immediate treatment when that interval to, you know, to shock is very brief, you know, seemingly what happened on the field. Again, we don't know all the, the details and what happened, um, but certainly it seemed like he was provided high quality CPR right away. Um, and a defibrillator was, you know, brought to that scene, you know, very, very quickly, right? That seems like immediate CPR, but that 10 minute response, you know, or that 10 minute timeline that takes us to actually make contact with a patient, something is going to be very different. Like when we know VFib and VTAC is more protracted, depletion of those heart's energy reserves are going to compromise the efficacy of defibrillation unless those things are going to be replenished, excuse me, by a period of CPR before the rhythm analysis, right? So... All right. I, I, I get that. I get that. So let, let's back that up a little bit. Let's take two different scenarios. All okay, right. Let's do it. So I, I want to know, and I, I'm sure our listeners want to know, what's happening inside of the body when someone notices that someone's in cardiac arrest and they start immediate CPR and they call 911? What's happening to that patient? So... So, Billy, are you asking um, what's going on inside the patient after, after or before they start CPR, or what do you, what do you, what are you thinking here? So, what I'm trying to get at is, okay, someone notices CPR, 
or notice that someone needs CPR. Gotcha. All right. So I want to contrast those two things. If someone doesn't do CPR, what's happening inside of the body to that patient? And why does that, why, why is that so difficult for us to have a successful outcome for that patient when there's no bystander CPR going on, when there is bystander CPR going on, what's happening inside the body and why does that help us and help the patient in the long run? Uh, I gotcha. I gotcha. Right. So, and so Terry, I, you know, I think, you know, the, in scenario number one, and I'll let kind of you know, Terry take scenario number two, where there's no CPR going on, there's a number of things happening there. Primarily, there is a significant amount of hypoxia to the heart, okay? Um, and then there is, a, there is a, a certain amount of acidosis, right? pH is getting changed at that point, and the heart is getting to a point where it's just not receptive to electrical energy. And so, we have to do something to try to try to reverse hypoxia, reverse acidosis, right? We uh, sometimes say we are optimizing the patient for the treatment, whereas that's uh, that's contrasted in a in a patient that's getting some level of CPR, right, Terry? Sure. I mean, you know, if you recognize that that patient went into cardiac arrest right away, right? They have very little downtime, very little no flow time that we would call. Um, you know, the best manual CPR is it's still only moving 20 to 30% of normal blood flow, right? So even with our best efforts, um, you know, it's a, at best a stopgap measure, right? Until we can get that heart restarted, right? Or successfully defibrillate a, uh, an intervenable or shockable rhythm, which is certainly what we're hoping for. So we're hoping, right, obviously to prevent that ischemic event, right? To prevent that ischemic injury to the brain, to the heart, um, and try to get that patient um, back into a, you know, a more normal state, you know, as soon as possible when, once that patient's gone into cardiac arrest. Okay. All right. So then why do we have such dismal survival rates? Lack yeah. of bystander CPR, oh, okay. right? Okay. All <laughs> you right. Know, if there, if there's any good thing that can come out of that, you know, um, you know, seemingly tragic, but you know, hopefully there's going to be a good outcome long-term for Tamar Hamlin, right? Um, is that we encourage people to do bystander CPR. Hands-only CPR can be super effective. I mean, we all know this as paramedics, right? If we show up on a scene and somebody's been down for 10 minutes and nobody's done a compression, that, you know, that doesn't, you know, we're behind the eight ball from the very beginning. But if we walk in and we find somebody, you know, a rescuer sweating and trying to do a good job and doing, you know, even hands-only CPR for, for a good period of time, you know, that's got to energize us as providers to say, you know what, this is somebody we're going to get back. This is somebody we could have good success with, right? So I think bystander CPR is going to make a huge difference in what's going on. You know, certainly our telecommunicators, um, you know, the, the brave men and women who are answering the phone, right, who when somebody's having the worst day ever, um, you know, to get folks to do telephone CPR, to, you know, to do telephone CPR on your spouse, or your family member, your loved one, or your coworker, your colleague, whatever the case may be. And um, those are the think the things that are going to really help us move the needle, kind of moving forward, right? Is setting the scene for us when we show up. So, so you know, Billy and Terry, both of you, uh, in your in your uh, uh, Terry in your previous life at a department, and Billy, your current life, do you know what your uh, your bystander CPR percentage is? Doesn't that isn't that number eighty ninety percent? Yeah, I think so. Looking at our data, it's pretty good. I mean, we we're pretty good in Naperville. So have you measured that? Have you looked at that? Well, let me back up. I'm, I'm only using our, our CARES data, right? If so, if, if people are putting that in that, hey, um, someone was doing bystander CPR and we had a good outcome, you know, we're going to get that, that data from there. Right, so, right. Um, 
Yeah, because it, that number was pretty dismal in Rialto, and yeah. and not, uh, you know, not due to uh, a lack of effort, but. I think the last year I was at Rialto, or maybe the year before, I, I don't have the, the years exact, but I think we were somewhere around 36% of our patients received some level of bystander CPR. The rest received none. Yeah. So I don't know, Terry, what was your kind of experience? You know, and I, I don't, I don't certainly don't remember any of the numbers off the top of my head, but, um, you know, my general recollection is it was not great, right? Is that we had a lot of folks um, who hadn't received any bystander CPR, especially in a private residence, right? In a public space. Um, obviously, folks are going to be more willing to provide CPR in a, in a gym or a coffee shop or something like that. You know, hopefully you're going to get, um, you know, a good Samaritan who's willing to step up to the plate and, uh, and, and deliver that CPR. In private residences, you know, especially with, with you, know, um, you know, older patients and seeing your spouse or, you know, your loved one going to cardiac arrest, I unfortunately did not see a lot of, um, you know, bystander CPR. Yeah, I think you're correct on that. You know, we have that difficulty too. You know when it's in a residence, right? If it's oh, in yeah. public, it's a different thing. Well, I mean, sure. we're Diff- we're totally lucky. We're lucky. I'm lucky to work for a community that you know does great CPR programs. We have AEDs uh-huh. in in public places, and you know we use Pulse Point. You know those kind of things. But we see that in a resident, it's very difficult because you got that psychological thing the going barrier. on, right? Oh, right. I don't want to do CPR on my loved one. Who wants to do that? I mean, that's that's crazy to think about that. You know, I think some of the agencies that are really successful with with uh, bystander CPR, right, actually talk about that when they're teaching bystander CPR, yeah. right, is to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, you're very likely to be doing CPR on somebody you know or you love, um, you know, and that's a strange mental bridge to cross, but really a really an important one again if we want to move the needle if we want to improve survival in our communities bystander cpr is a huge way to do that yeah and i think when uh you know i'm not maybe maybe I, my, the question wasn't very specific there Billy. you know when when we went back and looked in rialto at the patients that that had neurologically intact survival almost across the board it was close to 100 percent of those folks had some level of bystander cpr but when we look at all of our cardiac arrests as a whole it was around 36% that uh, had bystander CPR. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you there too, because we had some form of bystander CPR going on for all the ones that, you know, neurologically made it. All of, all of your survivors, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. that makes sense, yeah. Totally. But I, I guess the question I want to talk to Joe about is is this. We're, we're And you guys have probably experienced this too, is we've been so conditioned, right, to get on scene. Right. And you know, start some kind of CPR. We put them on pads, right? And right. we see V-fib and our protocol says to shock that, right? Regardless of if there's bystander CPR going on or not. Right, right. Right. So we shock that, but they don't make it. We put them into a different rhythm that... If you don't recognize the rhythm, shock until you find <laughs> one to recognize. <laughs> so... I mean, what they say today, shock until you recognize it. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Some variation of that. So why do we continue to do that? Well, I I think, you know, we have, uh, it's a misperception on our part that, that, you know, our, our timeline is different than the patient's timeline. Um, And it's, it's just kind of overall the methodology that we've always used early defibrillation is extremely important. And we agree, right. That, the earlier you defibrillate a patient in an, in an early environment, right? And I don't have a timeline that, that is that early environment, but the DeMar Hamlin case, right? Within, within, within a couple minutes of them going down, the more successful that defibrillation is going to be. 
But after they've turned acidotic, after they've turned hypoxic, and they've been down a while with no, no bystander CPR, that defibrillation is not going to be successful, right? And so what do we say in class? We say early defibrillation is early until it isn't, right? And there's a point there. And that's, that's probably the gray area. The area that we're trying to kind of try to vet out here is how do we figure out what that, what that is? What is that gray area where early defibrillation is really going to be successful, but after a certain point, it's not. And so Terry can probably speak to this. We use a certain, a certain metrics or a proxy, right, in ACR to figure out what that would be. What, what is that, Terry? So we're using entitled CO2 kind of as that proxy um, to, to figure out or to make our best decision on whether we we're going to defibrillate a patient, right? Um, because ultimately, you know, we certainly want to defibrillate a patient who's in an intervenable rhythm into a perfusing rhythm, but we don't want to just blindly defibrillate everybody, you know, knowing if you shock fine V-fib, you can ask, if you've got 100 paramedics in a room and ask them if you shock fine V-fib, for a patient who's been down for a long period of time, what's going to happen? They're all going to tell you that you're going to shock that patient into an asystolic rhythm. You know, we want you to defibrillate patients, and we want to advocate for defibrillating patients when we know we're going to convert them into a, um, a perfusing rhythm, right? So um, that patient who's been down for a period of time, like a normal out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, we think it makes sense, you know, and there's some emerging evidence to suggest that entitled CO2 can be a very good proxy to help us make better decisions um, and not just blindly defibrillate everybody just because an algorithm says so. So what can we do to improve that situation, right, to make that end title go up? What, what are some of the things that, you know, some, some things we could tell our listeners that they can do? So certainly high quality and, you know, high quality CPR, right, you know, where we're guided by feedback, where we're using mechanical devices, we're using a rescue pod to help us inc increase perfusion, you know, pull more blood back to the heart, all those things are going to be successful, right? We're all conditioned to think that that V-fib waveform is only going to become finer and finer and finer the longer that this arrest persists, um, you know, but our hope is going to be that we're going to be able to improve that by performing high-quality CPR, a high-perfusion bundle, something to that kind of ilk um, to help improve that patient situation. So when we do defibrillate the patient, we're going to successfully convert them. So that's how, why we use entitled CO2 to help us kind of guide that decision-making process. Yeah. Well, so, so hold, so, so slow down a tiny, tiny bit for me, Terry, because I think you, you know, you went through a lot of great stuff right there in a, in a, uh, you know, in literally 30 seconds. And I want to, I want to back up to the, you know, the number one thing that you, you started talking about was high quality CPR, mechanical CPR. Billy's kind of saying, well, what can we do to improve the, the outcomes of that defibrillation? And I think high quality manual CPR is, is definitely part of that. But uh, mechanical CPR is a huge part of that uh, that puzzle. So talk to me a little bit about high, uh, about mechanical CPR and why that's why that would improve outcomes. Well, I mean, for a number of reasons, right? Um, you know, mechanical CPR doesn't get tired. It doesn't get bored. It doesn't worry about what's happening off shift. It doesn't worry about what's next in the algorithm, right? It's going to if you use mechanical CPR correctly, if we set it up correctly, you know, we make sure that we're using things um, in the right spots, using the right straps, the right right equipment. Mechanical CPR can be really successful, um, you know, for all of those reasons. It, you know, generally, you know, you use a load distributing band that can move more blood than a, than a, than a set of hands can. Right. So we can, um, you know, drive near normal blood flow um, in, in, you know, in those situations and especially using devices like the rescue pod. Right. Rescue pod POD is perfusion on demand. Right. We know that's going to help us. Um, pull more blood back to the heart with every compression, and we're going to have increased cardiac output from that. So using those sorts of things 
um, you know, should be able to coarsen up that V-fib waveform. Um, we start producing more carbon dioxide because we're better perfusing that patient. And then subsequently, when we defibrillate that patient, hopefully we're going to have a better outcome there, um, you know, when we're, when we're doing all those things correctly. Wait, so, 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 so no, no, I'm going to back them up for a second. So did you say near normal blood flow? I did say near normal blood flow. So quality mechanical CPR device can, can produce near normal blood flow. So what's happening when we're producing near normal blood flow? What's happening to acidosis, hypoxia, and all of those things that's going to improve defibrillation success? Well, certainly every patient is different, right? So it's hard to make, you know, broad generalizations, but you know, we're doing more gas exchange. We're, mm. you know, we're, um, you know, we're helping uh, move that, that oxygenated blood forward. You know, we're helping to improve blood flow to, um, you know, improve blood flow to and from the brain. You know, all those things are going to be important in the long run. Yeah. So yeah, reversing hypoxia, reversing acidosis, right? Um, all, all of those things are going to significantly improve defibrillation outcome, right? And I agree with you. Every patient's different, right? Their downtime's different. Their their comorbidities are different. Sure. But uh, but if we're going to give them any chance, the chance is here, right? The chance is right here, right now, with near normal blood flow, reversing acidosis and hypoxia, and then attempting that defibrillation. Yeah, absolutely. We we want to stack the the deck in our favor, right? We want to do everything we can to improve the chances of our success. Um, you know, and I think a lot of emerging research is showing that end tidal CO2 can help us make those better decisions, right? If the patient's perfusing, they're going to have a higher end tidal CO2 value, um, you know, and we're, we're going to associate that with higher defibrillation success rates. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think I'm wrong. When we have someone <laughs> that goes down. <laughs> Billy doesn't think he's wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. Kind of a big deal. Um so when someone goes down in public and someone recognizes that they are in cardiac arrest and they grab an AED, let's talk about that for a second, and they slap that on the patient and it's looking at that patient's heart rhythm, all right? What is that AED, how is that actually working? Because I, 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 just bear with me because there's a point to this. How, how is that actually working, that AED? What's it looking at? Well, it's certainly, you know, measuring the amplitude and the frequency of that waveform, right? Does it, does it recognize that it's V-fib or V-tac, a shockable rhythm? Um, you know, it's going to confirm that it is a shockable rhythm. And if the device and the algorithm believe that it's a shockable rhythm, it's going to recommend that you, you know, in a semi-automatic defibrillator, it's going to recommend that you charge and shock. So that's why they say early defibrillation is essential, right? Because that amplitude is nice and big and fat, right? Yeah. I mean, certainly you'd expect that, right? You'd expect that nice big fat waveform that over time is going to become finer and finer and finer till we're having a hard time delineating. Is that an asystolic rhythm or is that, you know, a, a fine V-fib? And I'm sorry, Billy, are we having a size discussion? We are. <laughs> size, <laughs> size does matter. Matters. Size, size matters. matters. All right, go, go. <laughs> so you're telling me also that when we get on the scene and we start using mechanical CPR, we can change the coarseness of that V-fib if they're in V-fib. Certainly that's the goal, right? That's the goal. Is, you know, and again, every, every patient is going to be different depending on how long they've been down and comorbidities and all the things Joe sure. talked about. But in the best case scenario, yeah, you're coarsening up that waveform, right, um, to something that we'd all be itching to shock as paramedics, right, as opposed to something that, you know, is very fine. And we all know we're going to have a bad outcome if we shock that very fine rhythm. But 
we generally think we're going to have a much better outcome, you know, with a nice big fat coarse, uh, you know, ventricular rhythm. And I, and, I, and I think this is an important point here is I don't believe uh, collectively as a, as a field of medicine that we believe we can fatten that up. We've spent our entire careers doing um, maybe not the best quality of CPR, lots of interruptions, you know, all of the things we know that should be done, we, we're not doing it all that well. And so we think that no matter what, that amplitude is going to get smaller and smaller and go away. So we got to shock it if we see anything. And I think the, the reality is that if we do really high quality CPR, right, especially using a mechanical CPR device, then lending at the right rate, using an impedance threshold device, all of the things that we do, we believe we can fatten that back up. But collectively, we don't, we don't think about it that way in our heads as, as paramedics or as physicians or as nurses. We think it's always going to get worse but it could get better if you do it right. Yeah, most most definitely. That's the way I always thought. Yeah. You know, because I, I can count on one hand how many people have had a positive outcome from from that, you know, early on. Right, right. So um, I just, you know, it emphasizes the importance of early CPR, you know, a lot of CPR. And what, what do you say in Rialto? Better tomorrow. Better tomorrow, but... Nothing trumps compressions. Nothing trumps compressions. I, I, I got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nothing trumps compressions. Nothing. Right. So how do we ingrain that into um, our agencies that are responding to cardiac arrest and they want to improve their outcomes in regards to CPR? What are some good tips for, for them to uh, start implementing that they can start implementing? Okay. So here, here's, here it is right here. This is the, this is the, uh, the, the wisdom of the ages. Stop stopping. <laughs> Stop stopping? Stop stopping. Stop stopping CPR to check a rhythm. Stop stopping CPR to check for a pulse. Stop stopping CPR to drop a tube. Stop stopping CPR, right? If we say, and we agree, and, and Terry, when we, when, when we lecture, we always say, um, nothing trumps compressions, right? What should trump compressions? Nothing, right? Then why do we stop all the time? So the wisdom from, uh, from Joe Powell here is to stop stopping. But doesn't it say we have to do like pulse and rhythm checks every two minutes, that stuff. You're just trying to get me to like uh, get all fired up here. I want right? you to hit, like you throw went, something at me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pulse check, rhythm check, pulse check, rhythm check, pulse check, rhythm check every two minutes. Yep. That's been ingrained in us at paramedic school, right? You got to check every two minutes. What happens to cerebral perfusion pressure? What happens to coronary perfusion pressure when you stop CPR, right? It goes in the toilet, Right. I had some mm -hmm. other thoughts there, right? But it goes, right, right. It, go, it, it goes in the toilet. How long does it take to, to uh, nullify or to avoid um, cerebral perfusion pressure once you stop compressions? I'll tell you, right? If you, I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the people on the podcast have seen the DeMar Hamlin film, right? How long did it take from the time that he took that hit to the time he was unconscious on the ground? Seconds. Right, so it takes seconds to decrease that pressure, and then we got to build it back up again. Right, so that routine stop, uh, yeah, pulse check, rhythm check, pulse check, rhythm check. First off, we don't even need to do a rhythm check if we know their entitled CO two is below twenty. Right, Terry. Right, would you agree with that? It certainly is very likely that if they're entitled to is less than twenty, they don't have a perfusing rhythm. I would totally agree with yeah. that. So no perfusing rhythm. What else? What else do you think won't be uh, productive if they're entitled to CO two is below twenty? 
Well, I mean, generally, we, we wouldn't recommend on a routine basis that you defibrillate that patient, right? Because, you know, if we use antitidal CO2 as a proxy, you know, we want to try to correct as much of the things as we can as before we actually defibrillate them because we want to defibrillate them when we know it'll be successful. Right, right. And we believe that 20 is about that number, right? Most of the studies that you're that, that we quote in ACR show us that, uh, that, that maybe 20 is maybe actually a little low. Actually, most of the studies show a little higher number for, um, for entitled CO2 correlation to defibrillation success? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Savastano uh, is one of the researchers that's done some really excellent work on this. And, you know, one particular study that we talk to uh, talk about frequently, um, you know, just to kind of boil down the, the entire study, they looked at, uh, you know, I, th- I believe a couple hundred defibrillations. And with those couple hundred defibrillations, when entitled CO2 was less than seven, no shock was effective. When entitled CO2 was higher than 45, no shock was ineffective, right? So, you know, I think it's very reasonable to, you know, to conclude from that, that the higher the entitled CO2 level, you know, the more likely um, that we're going to be to successfully convert somebody with the defibrillation. That's awesome stuff. Yeah. That's yeah, awesome I, stuff. Yeah, I think we've really got to, we've got to uh, look at why we are stopping compressions, right? And, and is there an intervenable rhythm? that we're gonna stop compressions for and defibrillate. Um, we surely should not be stopping compressions to check for a pulse, especially if our end tidal CO2 doesn't indicate or our, our blood pressure doesn't indicate, right? Which is a whole different discussion, right? That there is actually an underlying pulse, right? So let's, let's not stop for those reasons, right? We're, we're, we shouldn't stop stopping. So I think we all agree that CPR is probably one of the best medicines for that patient. Chest compressions are the most important medicine most, that we can be giving a patient in cardiac arrest. Most definitely. So, and, and I think we all agree if that if that patient arrests in front of us, totally different animal, right? right. That patient that that arrests in front of us, let's defibrate them immediately, right? If right, you know, if if they're in a intervenable rhythm, obviously, right. Um, but you know, check and 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 make that decision and and do that quickly, you know, if that's the case, right. Um, but I. I think we all agree, right, that the average out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that fire and EMS responds to is a very different animal, right? Oh, yeah. We're oh. talking about much longer downtimes um, than, than somebody going into a, a VTAC right in front of you. Yeah, and I think uh, we can also agree that, you know, we're talking about, you know, optimizing the patient, you know, right here, but there, there's so much more we can do, like optimize the community with improving CPR programs in our, in our community and, you know, pulse point apps and AED in our, in our community, right? Yeah. Public access, public access to fibrillation, community health initiatives, all those things are going to be important. They're all going to help us move the needle, right? Um, solving sudden cardiac arrest or out of hospital cardiac arrest is not something that the fire department, the EMS agency can solve on their own, right? I know we all hate to say it, right? But it takes a village. There's so many things that have to go right. You know, our 911 centers have got to be doing aggressive telephone CPR. We've got to be getting our responders out the door early. We've got to be doing high quality CPR and using high performance bundles, um, you know, to, to, to improve patient conditions. Um, and we need to be making good decisions, right? Not just blindly following algorithms, right? We can, we can make good decisions and, and um, you know, help improve outcomes for our patients, right? And then obviously our, you know, our hospital counterparts play a huge part of what's happening as, you know, as those patients recover and as they, you know, continue to be stabilized, right? So, um, you know, there's not just one thing. There's a lot of things that have to go right for us to, to move the needle in sun cardiac rest. 
Yeah, and I, I yeah, totally agree. The, uh, you know, uh, a couple of things that Terry said, right? You know, Terry said blindly following algorithms. And I think that that kind of goes along with doing what we've, we've always done, right? Mm. We just do that because we've always done it. We do that because we were taught that in primary school. We do that because that's, you know, that's what we're told to do. But if it doesn't provide the outcomes that we're looking for, we've got to question it, right? We've got to go back and question it. But surely, um, many times it's the non-sexy stuff that will buy us the survival that, that we want. And it's it's uh, all of that stuff that Terry just talked about, that optimizing the system, optimizing the, um, the, the what's the other one? Optimize the system, optimize the community, the community yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so know. yeah, that uh, that many times gets us. Don't laugh, don't laugh I'm at me. Not laughing. I'm not laughing. <laughs> uh, optimizing the system, optimizing the community that gets us those uh, those neurologically intact survivors, right, and those outcomes that we're looking for. Yeah, you know, working with our, our law enforcement partners, right? They're they're a lot of times going to show yeah. up on scenes before us, right? And if those law enforcement folks have AEDs and they're in the front seat of cars, where they're going to be top of mind and easy to get to, that can make a big difference. Right? Yeah. So yeah, for sure. There, we, 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 we really do need to think outside the box because, you know, we've been around that same, you know, eight to 10% survival for an awful long time. Uh, 40 years. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. About 40 years. Yeah. 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 Well, a lot of great stuff here that we unpacked. There's a lot more to unpack for yeah. sure. Um, any final thoughts from the both of you? Nothing trumps compressions. Nothing. Okay. Stop stopping. Yeah. Stop stopping. If you're, if you're an EMS <laughs> provider, there is nothing that you can do for a patient in sudden cardiac arrest that is more important than chest compressions. Well, that's that's awesome, Terry. Thanks for being here. You're I mean, welcome, Billy. It was it was awesome, and Joe, it's yeah. you know you're always a delight to be around. I am a delight. You, you are correct. <laughs> I've heard many things to describe you, Joe. I don't know that delight was one of them, <laughs> the but delight's not I'll it. All right. Let's go with it. Yeah. As, as, Thank you, Billy. Yeah, you're welcome. As always, you know, please uh, follow us on our podcast and, um, you know, we'll have uh, contact info, info in, in our show notes and uh, yeah. So just uh, stop stopping and nothing trumps compressions. Nothing. <laughs> Better tomorrow. Better tomorrow. Let's go. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys. This podcast and its postings are for general informational purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, medical direction, medical oversight, or medical advice. No doctor-patient or doctor-healthcare provider relationship is formed. This podcast and advanced cardiac resuscitation are not a substitute for any local, state, or federal policies, protocols, or treatment guidelines. The views and opinions of the hosts and the guests of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view or policy of advanced cardiac resuscitation, its officers, members, or member agencies. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by advanced cardiac resuscitation. Thank you for listening to ACR Moonshot, the Advanced Cardiac Resuscitation Podcast. <laughs>